Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour on a scorcher of a day, at least if you're living um, in the south of England. We are going to be talking about the weather and obviously its connection to climate change. We'll also be discussing Priti Patel's decision about the extradition of Julian Assange, the renter's bill, some very interesting content in that, although, as you can imagine, it probably doesn't go as far as I would like it to go. And we are going to talk about the Tory candidate in Wakefield bringing up a very surprising figure in his pitch for vote. A mass murderer, in fact. Do wait for that. I'm joined all evening by Dahlia. Gabriel, Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm My ass is being absolutely kicked by hay fever right now, so apologies for what might take place during this show, but I'm here and I'm stuffy and I'm trying to make it through, so... <laughs> We have a we have a couple of pre-recorded interviews um, on today's show with some expert guests. So maybe maybe in, in those moments you can clear your your airwaves. Priti Patel has approved the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States. As Home Secretary, Patel is the final authority on extraditions to foreign countries. If sent to the US, Assange will face a series of espionage charges after a grand jury indicted him in 2019. In a statement, the Home Office said. The UK courts have not found that it would be oppressive, unjust, or an abuse of process to extradite Mr. Assange, nor have they found that extradition would be incompatible with his human rights, including his right to a fair trial and to freedom of expression, and that whilst in the US he will be treated appropriately, including in relation to his health. This decision is the latest development in what has become a tortuous high-stakes legal battle which has seen Assange denied his freedom for a decade. Responding to the announcement today, Amnesty International's Agnes Kalamad said, If the extradition proceeds, Amnesty International is extremely concerned that Assange faces a high risk of prolonged solitary confinement, which would violate the prohibition on torture or other ill treatment. Diplomatic assurances provided by the US that Assange will not be kept in solitary confinement cannot be taken on face value given previous history. And even senior Tory and former Minister David Davis has his doubts. Journalists in Britain and elsewhere will be very worried by the decision to extradite Julian Assange to the US, both for his own well-being and for the precedent it creates for journalism worldwide. John Simpson, of course, I suppose probably the the, the journalist, the broadcaster who I think of as you know more establishment than anyone else. John Simpson, a staple of the BBC, sort of speaking out against this. Former senior Tory ministers have had their doubts. David Davies, sadly, I do not believe Mr. Assange will get a fair trial. This extradition treaty needs to be rewritten to give British and American citizens identical rights, unlike now. The mention of identical rights is a reference to the fact that as it stands, the UK is expected to extradite someone to the US just on the basis of the Americans issuing an arrest warrant. In contrast, the US will only extradite someone to the UK if the UK can prove reasonable grounds for the person's guilt. This is not a, an even two-way street. So will this decision mark the end of the road for Assange to avoid extradition? His wife, Stella Assange, doesn't think so. I spoke to him about 45 minutes ago, and he, was, he had just learned about the decision uh, about an hour and a half after, two hours after everyone else. And uh, he was very anxious last night when I spoke to him as well. He, he didn't sleep all night. And, you know, it's, it's extremely stressful. Even though uh, you prepare yourself for the worst, it's still extremely 
stressful. Uh, but he is, you know, we were preparing for this situation and our fighting spirits are, are you know, even even stronger than before. And Julian is is ready to appeal this decision and fight on. Assange's lawyer, Jen Robinson, suggested the next steps um, they would take in that legal battle. So we are very concerned about the prospect of his extradition. We will continue to appeal and use all avenues of appeal to try to stop this. So we still have outstanding appeal, including in relation to the abusive process this, this entire case is, the political nature of the case and the offence, his right to a fair trial in the United States, we see he, he won't get one, and of course the very important free speech arguments that we are yet to run in the High Court. Next step is to seek permission to appeal in the High Court of this country. We will appeal it all the way if, if we need to to the Supreme Court. If we're unsuccessful there, we will seek to appeal to the European Court of Human Rights because this case is so important, not just for Julian, but for all media workers, all journalists, all editors in this country. The decision of the European Court with respect to the Rwanda deportations demonstrates the power of the European Court of Human Rights and its ability to step in to prevent grave injustice. We would hope that the European Court would do the same in respect to Julian, and that's why if, have, if we need to, we will be appealing to, to the European Court. We continue to call on the Australian government to do the right thing for this Australian citizen, which is to help put an end to this case and bring him home to Australia. Now, the Albanese government has already made clear um, through their public statements that enough is enough, this has gone on too long, and this case ought to be brought to an end. As his legal team, we are doing everything we can, but we need the Australian government's help. We need them to step in and protect the citizen. We need them to call President Biden and ask for this case to be put to an end. So lots and lots of avenues there. This will go to the High Court, the Supreme Court, potentially even the European Court on Human Rights, which, as Jen Robinson suggested there, they have you know, had, a, had a very high profile um, opposition to one government move recently. That was in terms of Rwanda. Maybe they will step in here. And then, as a last resort, going to the Australian government. Assange is an Australian citizen and the previous government, very right wing, didn't seem to care. Now you've got a Labour government who have suggested they might be willing to intervene. Earlier, it's not a surprise that Priti Patel has made a decision which stamps all over someone's human rights. How should we respond? It's an absolutely uh, appalling decision, uh, something that, as you point out, is completely consistent with Priti Patel's worldview. It sends a very clear message as well about what the British state is. You know, we have to remember that from the British Raj to the invasion of Iraq, so much of Britain and the US's imperial aggression and war waging has been justified on the basis that we are inherently more developed and democratic and civilized, and that countries that do not respect those democratic rights need to be forcibly changed. And a huge point at part of that has been pointing the finger to dictatorships around the world and pointing to the treatment of journalists in these dictatorships. We've seen it a lot in the, uh, in the current war in Ukraine, you know, a lot of, of rightly so, a lot of emphasis placed on the abuse of journalists by the Russian state. But we have to understand that the treatment of Assange as a case of not just abuse of human rights, but attacks on press freedom is in no way different to even the most extreme cases um, that the UK government highlights when it is talking about the lack of democratic rights um, in other countries, which is often conversations that then precede violent aggression. And so it's really important to remember that. 
when we hear uh, these kind of very grand narratives around the democratic West and democratizing the rest of the world. And as you, as you mentioned there, the, the selling of Assange down the river to the US, where the state has been extremely explicit in its desire to punish Assange, to make an example of him for the, you know, the crime, which is not a crime of leaking information that is, yes, incriminating, but information that the Americans and the rest of the world inherently have a right to know about. The selling of Assange down the river is not just a result of diplomatic pressure from the US. It's actually part and parcel, I would argue, of the ideological commitments of this government and in particular of Preeti Patel. Patel is, even in an already pretty reactionary and hostile landscape and government, she even stands out in that context for being particularly disinterested in government accountability and transparency. That is the in, what the entirety of the Rwanda plan was about. It was about essentially offshoring state violence so that it's out of sight and out of mind, so that it can be done with less journalistic scrutiny. And so, of course, for her, figures like Assange are deeply threatening to her sense of power. The threat that journalists and media workers can reveal the darker side of state activity is to her not part of a thriving democracy, but is a direct threat to her vision of how the British state and particularly the Home Office should operate under. And so what she has done is actually a deliberate message to the journalist class, the media class of Britain and beyond, that if you try it, don't think that you're going to be protected by any kind of abstract commitment to freedom of the press. You know, this is not passive. I think there's something quite passive about this idea of, of extradition. This is not passive, but active participation in a crackdown on press freedom that is part of an, a global trend. And, you know, that is completely consistent with the ideology of this government from, you know, the policing bill that cracks down on our rights um, to assemble and to protest to the ugly precedent that this decision sets for journalists as a whole in this country. Uh, and I hope for all our sake that his lawyers succeed with their attempts to appeal this decision and, and take it to the highest court possible. As I said, there are avenues that they're going to take. It does seem like they're going to fight this to the end. I don't know whether to, to, to bet on whether this extradition will happen. I, I feel like that's in a way above my pay grade. Those legal arguments are slightly beyond me. What I do think is clear, though, is that if the government's you know, intention here, the US government, the British government, whoever, was to disincentivize people from revealing state secrets, which I think are in the public interest, what was revealed was war crimes, right? Even liberal pundits are supposed to say, yeah, you're, you're supposed to, if you believe in the authority of the state, etc., you are supposed to keep their secrets until they do something which is deeply unethical. And Julian Assange was revealing things which were deeply unethical. Most journalists should see that that was what was going on. And now, regardless of whether he's extradited, he's been in confinement for 10 years. You know, so he spent seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy. The moment he went out, he would have been arrested threatened with extradition to Sweden. Lots of people at the time said, oh, well, this is a sexual assault charge. This has nothing to do with WikiLeaks, has nothing to do with revealing state secrets. He's clearly not going to be um, extradited to the United States. Why would that happen? They don't even want to extradite him. I think now when <laughs> now it's the case at the moment he did come out of the Ecuadorian embassy, suddenly the United States do want to extradite him. I, you know, I, th I think it's, um, 
in a way, I think he's been vindicated there by, by saying he, he he was concerned about that possibility. So I do think it is fair to say he has been detained for 10 years. He couldn't come out of the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years. He's now been in Belmarsh for three years. If I were someone with access to state secrets, I would be thinking quite seriously about that, right? You know, if, if I thought I am aware of the state doing something deeply wrong, deeply immoral, killing people against international law, that's what he was essentially revealing. And, you know, the worst case scenario is you end up languishing in jail for a decade, right? Without being able to leave, without being able to see anyone, your mental health completely destroyed. I mean, in this case, you have the CIA putting together plans to kill you. If the intention is to say, if you go against the United States, you are going to pay for it, they've already achieved it, whether or not this guy gets extradited. And I do think it is pretty disappointing. The level of silence you see from so much of the journalistic profession, I think here especially, you know, it always gets brought up because so many of WikiLeaks revelations were first published in The Guardian, that the sort of liberal commentariat that works for The Guardian, they say so little about it. Like John, you, you see a few of these characters are sort of like the big stalwarts. They feel like they've got a lot of independence. They're not so fussed about respectability anymore because they've been around for, for long enough that they can say what they think. John Simpson there, you saw him saying, this is an outrage. I think you probably count on one hand the number of people who work for The Guardian who have sort of said, this is an outrage. This is the guy who gave us some of our most important scoops over the past decade. And he's you know basically been tortured for 10 years. You know, I think you can sense a lack of solidarity um, there from some journalistic colleagues. And I do think it is, you know, both a disappointment and a bit of an eye-opener. We will, I'm sure, come back to this story, as I say, many, many legal avenues still to go down. But in the meantime, yes, he is still languishing in, in Balmarsh. Let's go to our next story. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but if you live anywhere south of Carlisle, the weather's got pretty hot. It's officially the hottest day of the year for England and Wales. The temperature hit 30.3 degrees at Heathrow in the last hour. That's around 10 degrees higher than the average for this time of year. It's absolutely boiling here, Victoria. I've just checked the BBC weather app. We've got 28 degrees here right now, and it's saying it could rise to 30, possibly even 31 degrees. It is going to be an absolute scorcher, maybe up to 34 degrees, which is hotter than Jamaica. Places like Cambridge, uh, Norwich, 32, 33, even we're told 34 degrees in London. So they're really, really going uh, to feel the heat. Because it is absolutely scorching here and the drinks are flowing on many of the boats. We've seen a Hindu uh, going up and down the river here in Cambridge. We've also seen one boat that is exclusively just a bar. I can't wait till Navarra has the funds and capacity to send us punting whenever the sun comes out and the temperature goes above 30 degrees. I also say this issue close to my heart, Navarra Media, yet to invest in proper aircon. Bit of a sweaty day in here. But more significant than my personal body temperature is the relationship between these temperatures we are seeing and climate change. To find out more, I spoke earlier to climate scientist Ella Gilbert, and I started by asking how unusual current temperatures are by historic standards. Well, this is unusual for June, very unusual. It's quite an early hot spell, it's not quite a heat wave yet, but it's not the hottest June temperature ever recorded. However, it is in the upper kind of levels of what's considered normal. And so you've, you've said it's hot for June. Does that mean we're expecting it to get even hotter in July and August? Should we expect sort of days like this, but more often and, and even hotter? I mean, I couldn't comment on the specific forecast, but, you know, as climate is warming, we are likely to see more extreme heat and that can extend further into into the year. Obviously, J July and August are hotter months. 
generally. So with our increased uh, temperatures as we warm our climate, that is very likely to happen, yes. And uh, I mean, this is obviously unusually hot for England and Britain. Whenever people are talking about how hot it is here and, and climate change, I'm always thinking, well, you know, Britain is a fairly temperate country to begin with. We, we weren't in a particularly bad place to experience a little bit of warming. You know, some might even find it fairly pleasant. Where in the world right now are they having warmer temperatures where that is not just, oh, maybe we you know, need to get some cooler clothes or some air con? Where, where is it a real, real problem right now? Well, I think there's two things to say with that. One is that it's it's relative to the kind of average climate. We live in a temperate climate, that is for sure. But if we're seeing extreme differences from that normal, then that is still going to cause a problem because we're adapted to deal with our normal temperate climate. The second thing to say is that heat waves are being seen all over the world. You'll remember in India and Pakistan very recently, there were really deadly heat waves reaching 50 degrees almost for a month or even longer in some places. And we also saw heat waves this year in March in the Arctic and the Antarctic simultaneously. So this sort of extreme weather is touching every single corner of the globe from the Arctic to India to the Antarctic. And uh, I mean, I suppose, you know, especially around the, the COP conferences, we talked about how we can mitigate climate change. Obviously, a heat wave like this makes us think about, or I know it's not explicitly a heat wave, that has to be, you know, a number of days, but a, a hot day like this, say, puts adaptation to the front of people's minds. How should we be adapting to hot weather? Is it a case of just, just everyone sort of installing air conditioning or could that be, you know, self-defeating if that only furthers climate change? I think there's a variety of different methods and part of it is going to be things like air conditioning for the hottest sort of temperatures that were predicted. But it's also making sure that people have access to cool spaces, whether that's making sure we have shady public parks that people can spend time in or public spaces like libraries that have air conditioning, because typically only the most rich people can afford to install air conditioning in their homes. And it's the poorest that end up bearing the brunt of really extreme heat. But it's also things like changing working patterns. So if you're doing outdoor work, for example, you're not working outside in the peak of the heat. And just generally reconfiguring the way that we do things, changing building regulations, for example, changing the ways that workplaces are heated and cooled. All of these sorts of things that need to be done from a kind of national level as well as international. And I suppose, you know, temperatures like this or for, say, someone like me, I'll speak from a personal perspective, you know, they might be inconvenient. They might be sort of difficult to work in. I don't feel, you know, that I'm, I'm a personal risk. Who, who is at risk from temperatures like this or how hot would it have to get before we're talking about, you know, people collapsing and, and needing to go to hospital or, or, or things such as that? Well, with every kind of additional degree when it comes to hot days uh, comes additional risk for those that are most vulnerable. And that tends to be the elderly or the very young people who already have pre-existing conditions. Really intense heat can cause dehydration. It can exacerbate existing heart or respiratory problems. So it's people who have uh, problems or health issues in those sorts of areas that are going to suffer the most. And obviously, situations like this get everyone talking about climate change. Are, are we actually learning anything new? Is this a surprise? Is the temperature getting hotter quicker than climate scientists expected? Or is this just us noticing something you've known was going to happen all along? In some locations on Earth, 
climate change does appear to be happening faster than in others. And in some places it is taking us by surprise. The general pattern in the sense that temperatures are rising on average, that we're seeing more extreme events, that records are being broken year on year is consistent with what climate scientists have been saying for decades. Um, unfortunately, this is a kind of wake up call, a reminder that this has been predicted and that it is starting to really make its effects felt all over the world and in all of our lives. That point about surprise is interesting. So as far as I understand it, there was the surprises were sort of like 40 odd degrees in, in Canada and was it 30 degrees in the Arctic circles, sort of really hot temperatures in places you wouldn't expect them. 33 degrees in England. Now that's, that's the kind of thing we can expect sort of normally into the future. Where are we most worried about? Are we most worried about sort of the Arctic and the Antarctic? Particularly in the polar regions, that where, that's where polar climate scientists like me particularly are especially concerned. We saw this 30 degree above average temperature in the Arctic that was concerning in the sense that it's causing sea ice to melt, etc., which accelerates uh, warming in the region. But in the Antarctic, we saw 40 degrees above average, and that is a really dramatic increase above what is considered normal, particularly because it was getting close to winter, the season. And this is where we have huge amounts of ice that could raise global sea levels by very considerable amounts. So if we're seeing really unheralded warming in those regions, that could have an impact on what we're predicting for, for the Antarctic. Finally, most of our viewers are in the UK. So a question sort of specific, relevant to us. How hot's it going to get? So if we're talking 5, 10, 20 years, how hot a country is Britain going to become? Uh, it's so hard to say. Well, if we continue on our, our current trajectory, uh, we're in for more than two degrees of warming on average across the globe by the end of the century. But I think in terms of extremes, the Met Office released something saying that by the end of the century, we might start seeing 40 degree days happening every 15 years or so if we keep emitting greenhouse gases at the rate we are. Um, and if it gets worse, then it could be every five years or so. So it could get a lot hotter uh, in terms of the extremes if we don't do everything that we can to mitigate climate change. That was Ella Gilbert speaking to me earlier. And now moving from the science of the hot weather to its media portrayal, there's just one journalistic response I want to ask you about, Dahlia. It's the front page of today's Daily Star, who have gone with weather boffins don't drink too much booze on hottest day of years. That's what the weather boffins are telling us. Six pints of water and a packet of crisps, please. And then the article is Weather killjoys are urging us not to drink too much alcohol today on the hottest day of the year. Yeah, right. Daily Star hit and miss kind of, well, I half agree with them today. I mean, I'm at work, so I would, if I wasn't, I probably would be getting pissed in a park somewhere, but six pints of water and six pints of beer. I don't know. How are you, de how are you dealing with the heat, Daly? What's your advice? First of all, the Daily Star stays the most chaotic, like, media outlet in this country, and I will stand by that. For me, it's like, it's the hay fever more than, like, I can't even think about the heat because it's just like my allergies are on fire. But basically, it's just hilarious, isn't it? That I really do feel that, particularly in this country, you know, we're talking about adaptation strategies and, you know, retrofitting homes and air conditioning and, you know, re like revamping our infrastructure in order to, 
to adapt to the fact that our climate is not going to be hospitable. You know, when you hear degree, like temperatures, like 50 degrees, as we heard in that interview, it's really important to remember that that is not actually habitable for human bodies. Like 50 degree weather is, is not, it's not just like, oh, this is a very hot and uncomfortable day. Thousands of people die just from heat exhaustion. Um, in those kinds of, of impact, in those kinds of contexts. And that's not even to mention the things that are knock-on effects of climate change that we don't feel as changes in the weather, but rather feel as big knock-on effects from what can be understood as quite incremental changes in weather. And especially in the UK, where through a total accident of geography, you know, we do have milder weather. And so we're less likely to experience those extreme weather events in the way that other countries in the world are are already experiencing. But still, the impacts will be felt through the knock-on effects in our food system, in our health system, etc. And so given like the scale of adaptation and transformation that is required, the idea of like just drink some goddamn water is like too controversial and too, you know, uh, much of a killjoy for the British press really shows that we just don't have a bloody fighting chance, at least not in the global north. In the global south, they're a bit more aware that something needs to change dramatically. But yeah, I'm just like, God, how are we even going to start talking about the kind of changes that need to happen when, you know, just staying hydrated is apparently too much for the British public to do? <laughs> yeah. I love like climate change, one of the most, probably the most complex challenge we've ever been faced with. And uh, someone tells us that we should at least stay hydrated. Say, fuck off, weather boffin. I'm going to get drunk. I'm not going to drink any water. Screw you. Like, what hope do we have of going to net zero and you know, radically adapting our lives to a greater degree than we kind of ever have before when a climate scientist, well, I suppose that probably wasn't a climate scientist, probably a public health expert, says, drink some water. You say, fuck off. It's a Friday as well. I mean, fair enough. You can get pissed once the sun goes down. Next story. In their 2019 manifesto, the Tories promised a better deal for renters. Details included the abolition of no-fault evictions and a scheme to allow a single deposit to be seamlessly transferred from one landlord to another. Now, finally, the white paper laying out those reforms is here. And while it contains some good news for renters, you won't be surprised to hear it doesn't go nearly far enough to level the playing field between landlords and their tenants. Here are the key parts. First, the dreaded Section 21 no-fault evictions they were introduced under Margaret Thatcher will be abolished. At the moment, a landlord can simply tell a tenant to leave with only two months' notice and without giving any reason. In the future, a landlord will have to provide reasonable grounds for the eviction. What those grounds will be hasn't yet been made clear, but disappointingly it's already obvious that it won't be limited to misdemeanours on the part of tenants. That's because the white paper also codifies new grounds for eviction, including a landlord wanting to sell the property or move a family member in. Of course, in all these discussions, the elephant in the room is when it comes to price, namely that the rent is just too damn high for most people in England, and especially if you live in a big city. On that front, the white paper says, we will only allow increases to rent once per year, replicating existing mechanisms, and will increase the minimum notice landlords must provide of any change in rent to two months. We will end the use of rent review clauses, preventing tenants being locked into automatic rent increases that are vague or may not reflect changes in the market price. 
Any attempts to evict tenants through unjustifiable rent increases are unacceptable. Of course, the criteria used to assess what is and isn't justifiable will be what's key here. If a landlord can say it's reasonable to hike rent by 15% because that's how the market has moved, that wouldn't provide much security for the tenant. For more details on the significance of the reforms, I spoke earlier to Glyn Robbins, a visiting fellow at LSC who specialises in housing. I began by asking him how significant he thought these reforms were. I don't mean you could deny that if all of those things happen, then it would undoubtedly improve the situation for a lot of private renters. I think there are still many questions to be asked about that in a broader sense. But of course, if you're relieving tenants of that constant anxiety around the threat of a no-fault eviction, never knowing where you're going to be living in six months or even two months' time, potentially having some degree of, I wouldn't call it certainty, but assurance or reassurance around rent levels and, and some of the other things, yeah, you know, of course it would be an improvement. But I think, as I say, we need to wait and see. The landlord lobby are very schooled at uh, grinding these sorts of reforms into virtual nothingness. And I'm sure their lobby will be actively trying to do that again. Having said which, I also think there's some issues around, and this takes us into the sort of broader question, I suppose, which is, from my point of view, the private rented sector will never really be a solution to housing need in this country. We need to be looking elsewhere for that. No amount of playing around with the law around private renting is going to alter that from my perspective. What actually needs to happen is far greater investment in council housing. And I believe that is the tenure of choice, if you will, for a lot of private renters. A lot of the people I know living in private renting at the moment aren't there because they want to be. They're there because there's no choice. I'm certainly with you on on council housing. So I live in an ex-council flat now rented by a private landlord for presumably you know three times what it would have been otherwise. So, so I think we, we share an image of what the solution is here. It's, I suppose sticking to sort of the specifics of this piece of, of, of legislation, or at least this proposed legislation, it seems to me what's really important is what explanations a landlord is allowed to give for evicting someone. So they said no fault eviction has gone. A landlord will have to explain why they're kicking you out. But as far as I understand, that can include they just want to sell the house or they want to lose, move a family member in there. Now, from my perspective, that's still the tenant hasn't been at fault, right? <laughs> so so the end of no fault evictions, you still can get evicted without having done anything wrong. So how, how significant is it to say we're getting rid of, of Section 21? Well, uh, again, I agree with you. I think it's, you know, potentially it's just a fig leaf. As you say, what this goes to ultimately, and this becomes almost an ideological debate around the rights of property owners and this sense that that is inviolable and that their rights as property owners always trump your rights as a tenant. And if that is the situation that you're presented with, as you say, and it could be a contrivance, it could be a capricious explanation, oh, you know, my long lost son's just come back from Australia or whatever it happens to be, how much better off is the tenant going to be? Again, I guess some of that will go to the detail and the legalities of this, but I'm sure like you, Michael, I've seen lots of private renters evicted with the most flimsy of explanations, even given how weak the law was before. And so, and I guess the other thing about this is, and again, I, I apologies if I'm straying into wider territory, but, you know, again, it goes to this idea that somehow there's some sort of equality in the law between the landlord and the tenant. And if if the two parties go off to court, you know, there somehow will be some kind of 
fair judicial system. And that just isn't the way the legal system works. The legal system is there to protect capital, to protect private property. And so given the scenario that you've just suggested, I think almost inevitably, you're still going to be evicted. It may take a little longer. It may be that it costs the landlord a little more. But ultimately, I don't see this really doing anything fundamentally, which is what needs to happen fundamentally, to shift that balance of power between the landlord and the tenant. I don't think this is going to do it, even if it is as good as it looks like it could be on paper. I still think you're right. This this won't solve the problem. The other ambiguity in in, in the white paper, is, as far as I understand, is what I'm obsessed with, which is price. The rent is too damn high. Obviously, you know, the Tories are not proposing rent controls here. They have said that they will be trying to give tenants recourse against unreasonable increases in rent from a landlord. Now, I've got no idea what that means. If that just means it has to be in line with with market rents in in the neighbourhood, then that's not going to be of much comfort to someone like me because. You know, the rents in the neighborhood are going up high. A, ten, a landlord can be doing something which isn't unusual and it still be disastrous for the person um, renting their, their home. So, I mean, what do you make of the references to unreasonable rent increases in this white paper? Again, let's take your case. Say it comes back as inflation plus 1%. Well, that's going to be an 11% rent increase at the moment, given that where inflation is at the minute. And those are the sorts of calculus that is usually used around these things. So you're right. In the end, it does come down to the rent is too damn high. I spent the latter half of last year in in New York uh, with private rent and campaigners over there. Rents in New York have gone up 33% in the last year, 33%. Now, obviously, some of that is a post-COVID or if we are post-COVID factor. But I think you'd be naive to think that we're not. Well, I think we're already seeing signs of rents rising over here as well. And they will continue to rise, I suspect, given everything else that we know about the state of the economy. So, again, yeah, I mean, it's going to be cold comfort to you, isn't it? If uh, if you're told that the amount that the rent can go up is by inflation plus one percent. Well, that's still effectively going to be an eviction order, isn't it? Because I assume you're not going to be able to afford that. And I also assume that however this legislation is couched, ultimately, as I said, the power will lie with the landlord. And if the rent isn't paid, the eviction order will follow. I don't think anything is going to change that, unfortunately. Having said which, you know, there's a lot of brilliant and growing uh, private renting campaigns around the country now. They've been pushing for this for years. You know, I don't want to pour cold water on it. I just think we need to be realistic. And forewarned is forearmed in the sense that we need to build that housing justice campaign alliance on the broadest possible front, um, but also be aware of the, these wider issues because this potentially, as I say, is really just is a fig leaf and a pretense and also a normalisation. You know, I often remember the when I studied housing many years ago or started to study it. In 1914, 90% of people in the UK were private renters. 90%. Now, I'm not saying that this government or any other neoliberal type government necessarily wants to or thinks it can go back to 90%, but I've seen it double. You've seen it double the number of private renters in the last decade or so. So, you know, I think they want to go back to that situation that my grandparents had where they were, there was no alternative but to private rent. And under those circumstances, the whip hand is only with the landlord. That was Glyn Robbins discussing some of the many limitations of these reforms. That doesn't mean they haven't got the right wing in a tailspin, though. The Telegraph, in particular, is a sight to behold. 
Following the publication of the white paper, they complained there won't be any small landlords left by next year. Peace uncritically quotes a number of landlords who say things like this. So Bethany Jameson, a landlord with two buy-to-let properties, I'm appalled at the government's constant interference in the private rented sector. Landlords own the properties, not the government. We have paid for these properties and they are our pension. It is a big assault on our property rights. Now, buy to let, I would bet, well, if, if I had a house, I would bet it that Bethany Jameson did not pay for her property. Her tenants did. Buy to let, how it works. You put up the deposit, then your tenants pay the rest of the mortgage. So this is my property. I paid for it. I should be able to do what I want with it. I bet you, Bethany Jameson, if I'm wrong, email michael at navaramedia.com and tell me that you actually paid for that house, not your tenants. Because as I say, what do I have? I could bet. Not a house, unfortunately. It's a big assault on our property. Come on. Right. Let's go to David Carter. He is a landlord with 13 properties still complaining. He says, I cannot take risks on tenants without the safety net of Section 21 and being able to get repossession without having to explain. So for this guy, the imposition of having to explain is too long, right? I bought this house. I get paid two grand a month for doing absolutely nothing, but I still can't possibly imagine having to explain why I'm evicting someone. He hasn't even been told you can't evict anyone. He's been told you have to explain. And that is too much for this guy to handle. It's mind-blowing. The next um, we, we, we have for you is in The Telegraph, David Frost. So David Frost was you know, in charge of Brexit for a while. And he has made this argument. The Tory assault on buy-to-let is another step on the road to socialism. He expands on that point by saying every step on this road may seem reasonable in isolation. The measures seem justified. The costs seem limited. But there is only one end to the journey. You don't live in a free society. Instead, you live in one where you can't use your property as you wish, only as the government says you can. That is collectivism. That is socialism. Now, this is a former government minister saying that landlords having to give people an explanation before they make them homeless, that is socialism. He's saying, we are on the road to hell if you have to give an explanation to someone before you make them homeless. If renters who have essentially paid your mortgage so that you can have a decent pension, you can't just kick them out on a whim. Wow, that is the road to socialism. Dahlia, how, how do you respond to these people? Oh my God, I thought these working age people with less wealth than me were going to pay my pension. I can't believe that now I have to explain if I make them homeless. A government, former government minister who's supposed to be an intelligent man saying people having to explain to someone why they're going to kick them out of their house, that's socialism. Well, how can you reason with these people? I mean, this is a great entry for right-wingers posting their L's online because what he accidentally reveals there was the central principle of capitalism, which is that property rights are more important than human rights, right? Like, Property rights is a more universal and important thing than, than human rights. And the, so the ability of a certain class of people to assert those property rights is systematically placed above the ability of most of us to live in dignity, to have some kind of stability uh, and all of the things that go along with stable housing. And of course, this law, while it makes things slightly better, 
uh, it redresses that inequality slightly in a little bit, like a, just the tiniest amount. The law hasn't, doesn't fundamentally change that principle. It doesn't fundamentally change the fact that property rights trump all other rights under capitalism and that that is the system that we, we live in. What this policy does, uh, far from being a step towards socialism, which, you know, I wish, in reality, it brings us one step closer to very bog standard social democracy. You know, this is how the rental market works in most other European cities. Uh, in a lot of, in a lot of European cities, you actually have rent controls. Uh, and so Britain is actually incredibly out of step with comparative economies with the rest of Europe in terms of how little uh, it protects renters and how much it protects landlords. And so this is the tiniest step um, towards redressing that. But one thing I found particularly egregious in those Telegraph uh, quotes was this attempt to portray landlordism or, or suggest that there is a version of landlordism that is you know, salt of the earth, mum and pup, like kind of hardworking grifter landlordism, uh, that, you know, is, is salt of the earth and, you know, they're just trying to pay their pension or, you know, they'll be out on the streets without this. First of all, you own three houses, Karen, like most people in this country don't own any houses. And secondly, the whole idea of, well, you can't come after it because this is our pension. Well, perhaps you shouldn't have endorsed a system in which the ability of people to some, a small class of people to, you know, stop working at 60 relied on them holding working class people hostage, uh, for the, you know, the audacity, the audacity of needing somewhere to live and not having tens of thousands of pounds in the bank, uh, to drop on, on a deposit. So, that is a systemic issue and you don't redress that, even if this whole notion of the kind of the grassroots landlord, which in itself is a laughable idea, but even if you take it on those terms, um, the system is clearly broken and needs to be demolished because that is an illogical way to run a housing system and to run, you know, as a way for people to, ex to build a retirement fund or whatever. So really, even on its own bizarre and laughable terms, the portrayal by the Telegraph of this as some kind of aggression against innocent people uh, doesn't even hold up. Yeah, well, why are you robbing us of the right to exploit our serfs? It's, it's, it seems <laughs> a bit like an argument from a, from a different century. I, I suppose to give a, the smallest defence of the odd landlord here and there, I would say I'm sure... You know, I don't know any personally, but I'm sure there are some people who have worked hard. Potentially, they were self-employed, so they didn't have a decent pension plan. They bought, you know, one buy-to-let house, which they you know, rent to people, and that is their pension plan. And if that were to crumble, they don't have another plan. I can see why that would be stressful for them. So uh, let's take that scenario, and, and I'll, I'll put my sort of sympathetic hat on here. Fine. And, and, and from that individual perspective, maybe fine. But it is... Who would say, what's, what's a sensible way that we can look after people in their own age as a society? How about we get arbitrarily, randomly chosen people who are going to be at the bottom half of the income spectrum because they're not, they don't, they don't own a home. How about we let pensions be the responsibility of poor people who will arbitrarily have to give 40% of their wage every month to pay the pensions of people who were potentially self-employed or didn't have a good pension scheme? Now, 
However sympathetic you are to that person, that is a crazy way of running society. Like you could not think of a more, I suppose, immoral, immoral, unjust way to say, how do we, how do we deal with an aging population? Aha, let's randomly charge um, a few people who weren't lucky enough or rich enough to own property. Let's make them pay the pensions of everyone else. That doesn't make sense. If we have a problem with people not having enough money for their pensions, we should be progressively taxing people so that the money comes from rich people, not disproportionately from poor people, as it does if you have a pension system, which is essentially based on people who work arbitrarily being chosen because they're poor to fund the pensions of people who are you know, on the spectrum wealthier than them. It, it, it couldn't get more unjust, yet that is the system which we we have, and that is a reality which is used to defend the status quo, as if that's suddenly, oh, no, you can't take away these people's pensions. Why am I paying their pension? That's not how it should work. I mean, I'm happy to pay people's pensions if it comes out of my tax and it's proportionate to what I earn and everyone pays it. I'm not happy to pay people's pensions if it's purely because I have nowhere else to live, right? I'm not happy to do that. I'm sorry. Let's go straight to our next story. With a by-election taking place next week in Wakefield, the Tories face a real challenge. That's firstly because Boris Johnson has had a rough few weeks in relation to Partygate. It's also because of the circumstances in which the previous MP resigned. Imrad Ahmad Khan stood down as the Tory representative for Wakefield after being found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy. But the Conservative candidate in next week's vote still thinks constituents should give his party another go. The thing is, though, I mean, the reason why we're having this by-election is because the previous Conservative MP was convicted of sexually assaulting a teenage boy. The Tories deserve to lose this election, don't they? No, they don't, because uh, the, uh, Mr Khan, uh, for his offences, uh, was the right things happened to him. He's in prison, which is the right place. As a teacher, a father, and as a human being, what he did was wrong. It was disgusting. And he's in, the, he's in prison, and he's rightly in prison. He's been convicted of that offence. And we can't, I, I cannot stand here, you know, I cannot stand here and say that was right or, you know, absolutely disgusting. And the people of Wakefield know that he was one bad apple. As you know, Harold Shipman committed suicide in Wakefield Prison. He was a GP, one of the most, trust, you know, a trusted professional like teachers and others. When we put that, you know, when they put a vaccine in our arm, we trust what they're putting in us. Do we, have we stopped trusting GPs? No, we still trust GPs. And we know that he was one bad apple in there. So he was one bad apple. He's, he's rightly been convicted, he's rightly in prison, and the people of Wakefield are forgiving people, providing we speak truth to them, we acknowledge the wrongs of what, what he's done. Dahlia, there's an old adage, which is, if, if you're explaining in politics, you're losing. Now, if explaining means losing, what does explaining with reference to Harold Shipman mean in terms of, of, of politics? What new rule do we need for that? I don't know who did this man's media training, but... It's like if you're trying to bury the crimes of, you know, your predecessor <laughs> or at least trying to rehabilitate yourself, given what your predecessor did, I feel like just saying, well, he's just like Harold Shipman is not great political comms. But um, but yeah, I mean, the whole like bad apple in a barrel thing or whatever. This is I mean, we're talking about the conservative government here. There is a systemic issue of of sexual assault and that was one of the key problems here was that it wasn't just about what this mp did it was about the complicity of institutions around him 
And the fact that there are sitting MPs today, mainly Crispin Blunt, who still defend him and still claim that this was a miscarriage of justice on the basis of what? That he, that's his mate? I don't know. Like, it's incredibly difficult to get a sexual assault conviction in a court. And so to be still claiming that he should be forgiven as a sitting MP, I mean, that just goes to show that what the what the case there is, is actually that this isn't something that, you know, my mate and someone that I consider to be a colleague should be fired for. But also, we know that there is a broader issue here because more than 10 MPs, and that, this is actually not just the Labour Party, it's actually um, not just the Conservative Party, it's actually a broader Westminster issue. More than 10 MPs in just the past five years have had sexual assault allegations made against them. And that's before you even consider the systemic uh, sort of disregard for victims of sexual assault through the closure of rape crisis centres uh, under austerity. But even on that individual level, there is a culture of cover-ups and brushing under the carpet of sexual assault allegations in government. And so this really isn't one bad apple in a barrel. Um, this is the barrel itself is, is the problem. And so his little metaphor uh, doesn't really work. But I just don't know who let him out loose on the streets with that kind of media training because it's almost like the Tories want to lose. We didn't mention his name. If you are looking for who not to vote for in Wakefield, it's Nadim Ahmed. I assume he's probably going to be called the local conservative or something. They don't like to go by the conservatives anymore. Also notable in relation to what you just said, Dahlia, there, the whole phrase with the one bad apple is one bad apple spoils the barrel. And I would imagine that in the case of, you know, what seems like prolific sexual assault and sexual harassment in Westminster, that's probably got a lot to do with it because I imagine what has happened here, you know, it's, it's all flooding out now, but Clearly, people there knew about this. And so one can imagine what happened is that you saw MPs get away with it, and then you decide, well, I can get away with it too. And that's exactly the idea of, of one bad apple spoiling the barrel. Um, I just want to mention one, one thing I did like about that video is MPs, you'll always get this on their campaigning videos. They always have to mention something about the local constituency. Now, I don't, I've got no idea. Maybe Nadim Ahmed is from the local constituency, but their campaigning has to invoke something from the local area because it shows that they're sort of in touch with the community. And his choice was Harold Shipman. <laughs> Harold Shipman was a GP in Wakefield, actually. Uh, Harold Shipman killed a lot of old people in Wakefield, and people in Wakefield still go to the GP, so they can still vote Tory. I hope they put him on the leaflets. That would be amazing. Do you still go, do you still go to your GP? Then you can still vote Tory in this by-election. I'm going to go collapse in a corner now. Dahlia, you can go and collapse in a corner if you want to as well. <laughs> you, you are relieved from duty. <laughs> it's nice to see you, Mike. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a while, um, but we will be doing this many a time again. We will be back on Monday at 7pm. Enjoy the sun. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>